Welcome to the New Books Network. The International Criminal Justice Project emerged in the 1990s at a euphoric moment of the promise of liberalism, cosmopolitanism, and internationalism. With the end of the Cold War and in the wake of genocide, ethnic cleansing, and mass atrocities, the international community resorted to creating international courts as the best way to achieve justice, accountability, and redress. This era was marked by the creation of ad hoc courts, hybrid tribunals, commissions of inquiry, and the International Criminal Court, the ICC, kind of like the ultimate institution that many believed the world needed. In fact, the international community faced many dilemmas at the Rome Conference in 1998 while drafting the statutes that created the ICC. The most obvious one being, how does one balance state sovereignty on the one hand with the powers vested in an international prosecutor to investigate and prosecute crimes within these very states as long as they fell under the ICC jurisdiction. The Rome Statute was ultimately a work of compromise, widely adopted by the states, albeit with the opposition of some of the most powerful ones, um, notably the, the, the exception of the United States, Russia, China, India, and Turkey, which to this day are not parties to the ICC. Since the entry into force of the Rome Statute on July 1st, 2002, all the situations currently under investigation at the ICC are located on the African continent and concern African individuals, except for the situations in Georgia as well as Bangladesh and Myanmar. Today, we'll talk about exactly that, the relationship between the ICC and member states and the debates that this relationship has triggered over whether or not the ICC, to an extent, undermines African sovereignty. But also, as my guest today highlights, what happens if we ask a different set of questions? Um, And what happens if we shift the focus? Instead of focusing on what the goals of the courts are, we could focus on what the goals of the very states that seek its services, what those are. Um, So with that said, welcome to the African Studies channel of the New Books Network, My name is Madina Cham. I'm your host. I'm a PhD candidate in African history at UCLA. And today, in today's episode, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Umar Ba, who is an assistant professor of political science at Morehouse College. And as some of you know, a contributing editor on the website, Africa is a Country. Professor Ba has just published his first book with Cambridge University Press. It just recently came out a few months ago and it is called States of Justice, the Politics of the International Criminal Court. This is what we'll be talking about today. Thank you very much for joining me on the show today, Omar. Uh, Thank you, Marina, for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. So can you begin by introducing yourself and also tell us um, how you developed this specific project? Uh, Yes, so uh, my name is Omar Ba, as you said, and uh, I'm an assistant professor at uh, Morehouse College in Atlanta, where I teach uh, courses on international relations. I first got interested on um, international law and uh, questions of uh, state sovereignty about a decade ago when I was doing my uh, MA uh, thesis uh, at uh, Ohio University. At the time, I was interested in the question about uh, the trial of Hissène Abre. This was a time when uh, Belgium 
had taken Senegal to court uh, demanding that either Senegal put Sahabre, the former president of Chad, on trial or extradite him uh, to Belgium. So I wrote my MST thesis on that question. And uh, I kept researching um, these questions of uh, state sovereignty and international legal institutions when I joined the University of Florida to do uh, my uh, PhD. While I was uh, researching the question, um, the main debates at the time were about uh, the International Criminal Court and its uh, focus on Africa and Africans. Um, The question was whether the ICC is uh, unfairly targeting Africans and what does it say about the international system itself. While researching that question, I found what I thought were an even more interesting question, which is from a political science perspective, how do states engage with the court? So I decided to focus on states that are weaker or presumed to be weaker in the international system, and African states certainly fit into that category. And how are these states engaging with the court developing a set of uh, strategies and course of actions to um, take advantage of the international system. This is uh, what my uh, dissertation was about, and this book grew out of that dissertation. Yeah, so let's dive in a little bit more. Um, I guess as you explain in the book and as you just suggest, there's kind of a traditional way that the debate around the ICC and Africa has been framed. Um, on the one hand, some people see it as, so see the court as kind of a neocolonial tool that the West uses um, against African states. And on the other hand, you have other people who see it more as a justice-seeking tool for African citizens who are oppressed by their own political elites. Um, and I think anyone, you know, any of us who is interested in the continent has grown up on the continent. We've been exposed to a lot of these debates um, and arguments. Uh, and so as you just said in the book, you go beyond the debate altogether and you ask um, how do weaker states, including African states, how do they use the ICC as a tool um, to further their own ex- interest? Um, so can you explain this to us a little bit more, I guess, like what specifically is the argument that you are um, developing in the book? And also, why do you think it was important to shift the angle and analyze the situation from that angle? So yes, as you said, um, there there can be two ways of looking at uh, this issue. The one being whether the ICC is a court that is built upon racist foundations, and certainly international law itself is a legacy of such a system that was designed to subjugate uh, populations of the global south and uh, uh, to put it in a different way, basically people of darker races. So I'm not refuting that argument. I actually have written some of uh, uh, some work um, pursuing that line of inquiry, and there's definitely a case to be made that the way that international courts are operating right now are part of the legacy of this uh, racism and this uh, colonial project. So there's no denying in that. 
But again, if you look specifically at the cases and the situations in which the ICC has been involved in the African continent, the picture becomes a bit more complex because you would see that in the majority of these cases, the states themselves invited the court. And that comes on the top of the state themselves having willingly joined the court. The ICC is a court that is created by a treaty and states become the members of the court by signing and ratifying the treaty. So we can ask ourselves, why do states actually join the court? And once they join the court, what are the conditions under which they would be willing to invite the court, send a letter of invitation to the court and say, we have an issue here. We would like you to come and look into this and open an investigation. And this has happened in the majority of the cases in which the ICC has been involved. So from a political science perspective, I wanted to see what drives states to reach out to the court and invite the prosecutor to come and look into issues that they have in their country. And for, I just want to remind listeners who are uh, interested or perhaps less familiar with this issue of uh, race and international relations and who are not familiar with the literature that um, you recently did a, a, a live show um, on Africa is a Country Talk along with another scholar, Samara Bulushi, on this very topic, race and international relations, and sort of explaining, uh, you know, what's been going on in the field and how scholars have tackled it. So people who have an interest in it should surely uh, make sure to watch this, and I'll make sure to include a link to that uh, along with this podcast. Um, but coming back to your book, Umar, so you explained that there are three different types of mechanisms that might trigger an ICC investigation. Um, the first one is... Uh, state referral, so referral by a member state. The second one is a referral from the United Nations Security Council. And the third one is sort of uh, uh, an investigation in, in initiated on the prosecutor's own uh, initiative. Um, and so we'll talk about all three of them, but let's focus on the first one for now, the state referral system. Uh, I was very interested in the book. You said that it ushered in, quote, a revolution in global justice that state referral system, um, because it didn't quite exactly go as those who, um, I guess, drafted and ratified the treaty had planned. Can you explain that to us a little bit more and also give us some examples of how it has worked in practice? Uh, yes, um, your listeners probably would be interested in knowing a little bit how the ICC came about. That helps understand how it operates. So the court itself was created at a conference in Rome in 1998. After weeks of negotiations in Rome itself, but prior to that, there were also years of negotiations and push and pull factors to create a permanent court. And this is the first permanent international criminal court that has existed. And instead of having to create specific courts with specific mandates each time that the international community is confronted with a big issue, the states decided that it would help to have a permanent court with judges there, a permanent seat, and a budget so they could 
uh, investigate, prosecute, and educate these cases. Unlike the court for Rwanda, the tribunal for Rwanda, or the one for the former Yugoslavia, or the current one for Lebanon, those are UN-created courts that are ad hoc, that have very limited mandates. Now, the ICC itself, being a product of long negotiations, resulted in what is called the Rome Statute, which is the founding document of the court. And because the states have to willingly join the court or refuse to do so, there are a lot of states that are not members of the court, um, the, the statute also defined how can the court gain jurisdiction over a situation for the prosecutor to be able to open first a preliminary examination and if it's a warranted start investigations. So these are called the trigger mechanisms. And as you said, there are three of them. One is the state referral. The other one is the security council referral. And the third one is the proprietary powers when the prosecutor use her own um, initiative to open an investigation. Now for the first one, the state referral. In the Rome Statute, the spirit of that article was that if there is a state that, that is either committing these crimes, or there are individuals in the state that are committing these crimes, or these crimes are being committed in a state, then all the states can refer that state to the ICC. And it's important to also remember that the ICC prosecutes four types of crimes which are deemed to be core crimes, crimes of atrocities that shock humanity. And these four crimes are genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the crime of aggression. So the state referral, as it was put into the Rome Statute, was that if state A is the theater where these crimes are being committed, then all the states can take state A to the ICC and ask the ICC prosecutor to open an investigation. But in reality, that did not happen. What ended up happening is states referring themselves to the ICC. For instance, mm -hmm. Uganda writing a letter to the ICC prosecutor and say, hey, we have a problem with the LRA. Could you come and look into it? And this is how the first three investigations of the ICC started. And Uganda did it. Uh, the DRC they did the same thing. And Central African Republic uh, did the same thing as well. So I wanted into the book to look into these patterns of behavior and what makes it these states read the state referral mechanism from the Rome Statute in these um, very interesting ways that allows them to actually take advantage of it. And this is not necessarily a violation of the Rome Statute. I think this is just a different reading and a different use, some would call it abuse, of what was intended by the Rome Statute. Yeah, and as I guess it supports also what you explained in the book, that states just seize the tools that are available and will use them 
as they see fit, um, even if it's not in the way that was initially intended uh, um, as, as, as these rules were designed. Um, so that was one type of referral, the state referral, one trigger mechanism. Uh, the second trigger mechanism that might happen is when a case is uh, referred for, by the UN Security Council. Um, so let's talk about one such case. That was uh, Libya. W- what lessons did the Libyan case yield for your own understanding of uh, the relationship between the ICC and member states or non-member states? Yes, um, this trigger mechanism, the ability of the UN Security Council to trigger ICC jurisdiction over the case was also part of long discussions and negotiations and compromise during the, the Rome conference. On the one side, you had those states who wanted the court to be totally independent from political pressure and to have a prosecutor that can actually initiate investigation without having to refer to the Security Council, which we, as we know, is the quintessential political body. On the other hand, you had other states, such as the United States, who wanted the ICC to be put under the supervision of the Security Council that would allow those states to be able to control and put some limits on what or constrain what the prosecutor could do. Now, the product was a bit of a compromise, which means that the Security Council can trigger ICC jurisdiction over a situation, even in countries or states that are not members of the ICC. Otherwise, the ICC would have jurisdiction only in either states that are members or when the crime has been committed by citizens of states that are members of the ICC. Now, with this trigger mechanism from the Security Council, then the Security Council has been able to refer two situations to the ICC so far. The one in Sudan was the first one, and the other one was um, the one for, for Libya in 2011. Now, on, in the book, I focus specifically on the Libya referral because I thought this was much more interesting case to discuss um, rather than the, the Sudan case because Libya actually engaged with the court by um, logging uh, admissibility challenges. The Rome Statute allows a state to challenge the court if the, if the prosecutor wants to open investigations or opens investigations, the state can challenge the prosecutor before the ICD judges by saying, actually, we are willing to investigate this and we are able to investigate this. Therefore, the ICC prosecutor has no jurisdiction. And that's exactly what Libya did. But again, this also goes back to the ICC operating in a political world, which is one of the main arguments that I make in the book, that the ICC cannot be shielded from the political ecosystem in which it operates. And also that the ICC itself is a political actor which may sound controversial, especially to a lot of 
people who work at the ICC or who view the ICC mainly as just a judicial institution, I make the argument that the relation that the court has with the UN Security Council makes it uh, a, make, uh, can help us make the case that the ICC operates in a political system and that the ICC itself is a political actor. Mm. So, yeah, that's, that's super interesting. And so, so again, you, so three trigger mechanisms, right? We just discussed two, the state referral um, has happened in uh, 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 a number of cases. Um, I think if, I'm, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, among the three trigger mechanisms, the state referral was the most common one. Is that correct, or is yes? Is that yes, not that's actual? correct. Yes. yes, that's the most common one. And then after that, there's been two uh, security council referrals so far. Okay, okay. So state referral most common one. Then the state the security council referrals. Um, and then another example being the the investigation the 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 prosecutor using um, her powers to uh, go after a specific case or to. Um, to the preliminary examination to start an investigation that happened in the case of Kenya, as you highlight in the book. Um, and we won't discuss this specific case right now because I was actually very interested in uh, uh, what you showed us, that in some cases, actually, things don't, didn't necessarily fall neatly into one of these three categories. Um, for example, it was somewhat of a different story that could place in Cote d'Ivoire um, in 2010-2011, and the following years. So what happened in that case? And also, how does that help us understand better um, what you explained to us in the book about states furthering their own interests or using the court for their own political settings um, and in their advantage? Yes, um, the, the argument I make in the case of Cote d'Ivoire at the ICC is twofold. One is that the ICC become involved in Ivorian domestic disputes, domestic politics. And its intervention was, uh, has had consequences on the ground at the political level. The other one that I looked at is the, the Ivorians themselves transposed their domestic political disputes to the court. So the court became, became the arena in which Ivorian politics were playing out. The situation in Cote d'Ivoire was interesting because, as you said, it didn't fit neatly into the state referral or the, the prosecutor using its own in, initiative because it's a case that took basically about a decade to materialize. And the ICC was more active towards the end than at the beginning. First, when Bagbo came to power after this whole, uh, these uh, problems with uh, um, the Christmas coup, uh, General Robert Gay, uh, and then uh, Bagbo came to power, and uh, two years later, in 2002, 
uh, Guillaume Soro's uh, forces uh, staged their own coup, um, but were not able to enter Abidjan to overthrow Bagbo. So uh, what ended up happening was Cote d'Ivoire became basically divided in two. So the north was controlled by the forces Nobel, um, uh, led by Guillaume Soro and uh, with their ally Ouattara, whereas the government of Cote d'Ivoire, uh, led by uh, Bagbo, had, was controlling the south. And then France was involved in this uh, stalemate, and there were basically a decade of negotiations to come back to a normal situation. And Bagbo's um, uh, mandate expired, so his political term expired, but there was no way of holding elections. And then in November 2010, what prior to that, after the 2002 coup by Soro and his forces, Bagbo sent a letter to the ICC to give ICC jurisdiction to say, we have a problem. We allow you to come and investigate. And mm-hmm. this is interesting because Cote d'Ivoire was not a member of the ICC. But the Rome Statute allows a state that is not member to log in on an ad hoc basis, an invitation to the ICC without being a member and saying, we have this situation and we want you to come in and investigate. So Bagbo's plan was to have the ICC come in and investigate uh, Soros, the forces, and the rebels. Well, that backfired. That backfired. And actually, in the, oh, the interesting thing is that at the time, the, it was the first ICC prosecutor who was there, um, uh, Luis Moreno Campo, who had his own problems. And he actually didn't do much. So from 2003 when Bagbo invited the ICC to 2010, the ICC didn't do anything, didn't intervene, didn't investigate, so the case was dormant. But then 2010 arrived in the contested elections and then um, to, according to some accounts, Bagbo lost the elections, but and then again, Bagbo refused to leave so Ouattara was supported by some ECOWAS forces and the friends, and then they tried to unseat Bagbo, which they ultimately were able to do. Then Ouattara sent a second letter to the ICC and say, we want you to come and look into this situation. We confirm the letter that Bagbo had sent you seven years ago, and then we have also another situation here, and we want you to come and investigate. And then the ICC kicks its machine in gear and comes in rushing, basically. Um, Wataraf wanted to, after he became president, to be able to manage the country. And the easy way to do that for him was to outsource Bagbo, which was a hot potato, there uh, in his hands to the Hague. So basically he let the ICC come and take, or he sends Bagbo and uh, Blegude to the ICC instead of putting in place mechanisms within Cote d'Ivoire to put them on trial. 
Remember mm -hmm. the ICC can intervene only if a state is unwilling or unable to prosecute the cases. And the Ivorian state did not collapse. There was still a judicial system. They still had courts, so they could have definitely put Babu and Blegude on trial. But again, this is an example that I argue is that the Ivorians transposed their political dispute and their domestic politics issues to The Hague. And then The Hague also, um, the ICC, was able to jump into this situation because it was, they believed, an easy case. Why? Because they are investigating one side of the conflict, the Bagbo side, and they could count on the cooperation from the Watara side to provide, you know, to gain access to evidence and then to provide the, the suspects to, to extradite them to, to The Hague. Could you give us an update, actually, for, for people who haven't followed on uh, where and how this case, the specific case of Babo and Ouattara and Cote d'Ivoire, ended up going? So Babo was arrested and shipped to The Hague, put in prison, awaiting trial. And then later on, his ally, Blake Goudet, was also uh, picked up and sent to The Hague. And the two cases at the ICC were merged. Um, the trial started and um, uh, lasted two years, but they had been in prison for something like seven years before um, the trial itself. And then they actually were both acquitted in January 2019, so a, a bit over a year ago which is an interesting case in itself because the ICC has had, there's been a lot of high-profile acquittals at the ICC. But the Bagbo and Blegude case is also interesting because their lawyers did not actually even have to make a case that they're innocent. So the prosecutor presented their case at the trial and when the prosecutor finished presenting their case, the evidence was so weak that Bagbo and Blegude's lawyers basically just asked the court, they filed what is called a no case to answer motion, which means that they don't even want to present their evidence that their client is innocent. They just say, based on the prosecutor's evidence, we argue that there's no possibility that a court could convince or could convict someone based on this evidence because the evidence is so weak. Therefore, we're just asking you to end the trial over here and declare our, our, our declare the defendants innocent, which is what the, what the court said. So in January 2019, the court decided that Bagbo and Blake Goudet were innocent because the prosecutor wasn't able to provide enough evidence that shows that there were a state or organized policy to attack civilians and that the speeches that Bagbo and Blake Goudet had made could not be tied 
directly to the atrocities that were committed. Therefore, they should be freed. Now, um, the prosecutor is filing uh, an appeal, of course, uh, but the most recent development was that Bagbo and Blegude, well, they've both been free. They're not in jail right now while the appeal is uh, being pursued. And they have been allowed to actually travel, but they can only go to states that are members of the ICC in case they need to be sent back to, to The Hague. And Bagbo, I believe, has filed for uh, a passport to be able to return to Ivory Coast. And um, the Wateras government has been unresponsive yet to his demand. Uh, for passport so he could uh, go back. And of course, there are elections that are upcoming in, in Cote d'Ivoire too, which adds another layer of complexity to this whole situation. Yeah, upcoming elections to which uh, Alassane Ouattara, the current president, um, has recently announced that he will be participating in, even though he had initially said he would not seek a third mandate. Um, and this, this has been, of course, triggering a lot of discussions. Um, and turmoil and protests in, in Cote d'Ivoire over this. Yes. Um, but sure, yeah, you do a great job at showing how, just how intertwined the politics of the court and the politics of that, the domestic politics of Cote d'Ivoire uh, became in that specific case and how one faction within the conflict that was going on basically outsourced the, the justice process um, to this outside body, the court, instead of, uh, of taking care of it at home. Um, there's a lot more that you discuss in the book, and we won't get to go over everything and all the cases. Uh, there's obviously the Kenyan case, which was uh, also very much talked about, and a very interesting one, um, where the court was investigating uh, a sitting president and vice president. Um, so I encourage everybody who wants to read about this, of course, to well get the book uh, to learn more about what happened in the case of Kenya. Um, and I want to shift a little bit now from... Uh, the actual content of the book to talk a little bit more about your research process for this project. Um, as you know, I'm, 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 more in, I'm more used to interviewing historians on this show. I'm a historian myself. Uh, and so I'm always very, very interested in, oh, like, what was the field work like? Like, where did you go to get your information? Um, and I was very happy to see that there's obviously a lot of empirical evidence um, that you bring in the book. Uh, and you talk a little bit about uh, the sources that you use, the numerous interviews um, that you held um, in various countries. I think you went to four countries for, for fieldwork. So yeah, I was hoping you would give us a sense a little bit of uh, your research process for the project. Uh, yes, so um, the, the research starts first with uh, the ICC documents and archives themselves. And um, I guess one good thing about working on the ICC is that most of the legal documents are published on the website. So you have access to all the court, the publicly released court documents and the transcripts and the motions and the filings. So you, there's a whole lot of documents that are readily available on the ICC website, which is very helpful. But also, um, I did conduct uh, research in The Hague at the court itself um, by doing two things mainly. 
um, interviewing court officials and uh, lawyers uh, who were involved in, in these cases, but also attending the court proceedings. So um, the trials, for instance, are open to the public. Anyone can come and sit in the public gallery and observe the proceedings, which is very interesting to, to do um, and see how the court uh, operates and see how um, the work is, uh, is done. So that adds a little bit of a pedestrian level to what we study. Um, I did also conduct uh, field work in uh, Kenya and uh, Uganda and Mali as well. Um, in Kenya, I was focusing on the ICC cases against uh, President Kenyatta and the Ruto. Um, so interviews with uh, politicians, um, human rights activists, uh, but also victims of the post-election violence, um, IDPs um, that I have conducted in uh, quite a number of Kenyan cities. Um, in Uganda, I did uh, interviews in Kampala, but also I went to, to um, northern Uganda, uh, which was the epicenter of this decades-long war between the Ugandan forces and the LRA, where I was able to interview um, local citizens and victims of this war. You always, again, a very different perspective when you talk to the people on the ground, um, because the ICC is in The Hague and um, has its own conception of justice, its own conception of victims and victimhood, and uh, has pledged to actually bring justice to the victims, quote-unquote. Then you go and talk to these victims, quote-unquote, and you hear a lot of different perspectives of what justice means to them, what has the ICC involvement in the situation led to, what were the consequences of the ICC involvement or non-involvement in, uh, the, at the domestic level. So this is um, pretty much how I conduct my research, um, do some archi archival research, um, conduct a lot of interviews, um, do field work, go on the ground, talk to people when uh, there's a possibility to, to do it and when there is a funding also to do it because as you <laughs> That's know, important. <laughs> field work costs a lot of money, yes. Yeah. Um. Omar, for the, for the remainder of this episode, I guess I want to shift the focus a little bit away from the project uh, and towards your own trajectory uh, as a scholar uh, and just as a person in general so that you know, we can all get to know you a little bit better. Um, something I've seen or heard you say very, very often is that when you get a new book or a PhD dissertation, the first thing you make sure to read very thoroughly is the acknowledgement section. So I did the first thing with your, the same thing with your book. Uh, and I was hoping you could share a little bit more of that with us. Tell us about some of the key people or formative events uh, that have been important in shaping you into the scholar that you are today. Um, so the book is dedicated to my two older brothers, uh, Mamadou and uh, Abdullah. Um, 
so okay, I'm from a small town in northern Senegal, quite far from the big cities. So it's a very rural, very remote, um, near the border with the Mauritania. And um, as it was the case back then, and it's still pretty much the case now in small towns like that, at best you could have there an elementary school, which is uh, grades of one to six. So that was the case when I was a kid. So I went to school in my hometown, Galoya, which had an elementary school, grades of one to six. But um, the day I started school, so my two brothers, my two older brothers, who were age seven and nine at the time, were going to start school that year. And my older cousin had come to our home, picked them up to go and get them registered so they could start school. So one of them was the right age. At the time, the starting age for grade one in school was uh, age seven. So Abdullah was age seven. Mamadou was already too old, but um, um, he was about to start at the same time. And of course, I was too young to start it because I was not quite five years old yet. I was almost five, but not quite yet. But we had just moved back. My family had just moved back to that town from Dakar. And we had just arrived uh, a few weeks earlier, and I didn't have any friends. None of us had friends there, so I was just hanging out with my two brothers. And when they, when my cousin picked them up to go and get them registered to start school, I followed them crying, saying, I want to go to school too. And I was told, <laughs> you're too young to start school. You know, you are not even five years old. That's not possible. But, you know, I just kept following them and crying. And then we arrived at the school. And Mushen Jai, who was the director, uh, who was also the one who would be teaching that uh, first grade that year, uh, was convinced by my cousin to just let me sit in the classroom, so pretend I'm a student, so I would stop crying, which is what happened. And Musinja allowed me to sit, and before you know it, I was, you know, a normal student in the classroom. So throughout our wow. whole, um, yeah, throughout our whole six grades, I was in the same classroom than uh, my my two brothers and. They are the ones that I dedicated this book to. But also, um, I've been lucky enough to have had always great teachers. Mr. Jai was one of them. Uh, my sixth grade school, uh, Mr. Cham, who shared the same last name than you. Shout out to uh, Mr. Cham. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to the late Mr. Cham. He was a great, a great, a great teacher um, who always um, believed in my potential and pushed me. Um, and uh, helped me actually once one when I passed the sixth grade exam. So there's a national exam that you take sixth grade to make you start then uh, middle school. But then when you pass that exam, if you're from where I'm from, it's a headache too because where do you go to school? So you have to move to a bigger city that has a middle school, and you may not know anybody or you may have some distant family members who live in a city who could take you in, 
but there were three of us and all three of us could not be sent and be um, taken in by the same family. So we have uh, basically my mom and dad had to figure out, you know, interesting ways of finding places where we could go to and leave and so we could um, stay in, uh, in school. So shout out to all those families in rural Senegal who take in all the people, the children, so they mm-hmm. could uh, go in school. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned your teachers um, and you're a teacher now. <laughs> so what, what are you teaching these days or what have you been teaching to your students at Morehouse um, that you can share with us a little bit also? Yes, um, Morehouse, as uh, a lot of your listeners probably know, is an HBCU, a historic, uh, historically black college. It's an old male school and it's a very specific and a very special place with uh, a, a very interesting uh, mission and a strong legacy in social justice. Um, we have a political science department that is uh, small. Um, and I teach all the IR courses in the department. So I do teach uh, introductory courses to IR, theories of IR, and then every semester I add one upper level course in IR, which um, depending on the semester can be international organization or international security or race and world politics. I also have another class that I teach uh, for the general education um, that is uh, for uh, freshmen that are not necessarily political science uh, uh, students, and that's a course on uh, politics and protest. But if you allow me, I would also want to add that I talked earlier about my teachers in uh, in Senegal. Um, there's also this factor that in the United States as well, I've been lucky enough to have had great teachers and mentors, uh, both at Ohio University. And uh, when I finished Ohio University, went to um, the University of Florida for, for the PhD. Also, I found a department that was uh, really welcoming uh, and was very diverse both in terms of its personal, but also the perspectives and the methodology and uh, the training. And uh, also, Ohio, I mean, uh, the University of Florida has an African Studies Center and an Africanist community, which was also very uh, intellectually enriching. And this book, in many ways, is also the the product of that environment in which I was able to um, to study and to work both at Ohio University and the University of Florida. Yeah, of course, and people who are interested in the Sahel, but not exclusively, I think everybody knows about the great group of people and scholars um, um, that is there at the University of Florida. Uh, and that is striving. And I guess it's not surprising that you that you come from this environment as well. Um, yeah, I'm sure your students are very lucky. I, 
You know, I remember you and I met a while ago. Um, it was like nine years ago, I think, uh, in Morocco. 2000, it was 2011, <laughs> yes. In, it was 2011, <laughs> yes, uh, in Morocco. So, yeah, shout out to all the participants of the Arabic and North African Studies program yeah, that summer. We were, we were in the same class. Uh, we were in the same class. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Um, yeah, that was, that, that was also quite an experience. We'll need a whole other podcast on that one. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's been great since then, um, I think, to see just like your evolution, but also how great of a mentor you have been this whole time. Uh, that's something I wanted to tell you as well. Uh, and that's why I was saying I'm sure your students are very lucky because I know how you can, you know, really invest yourself in these things and help out those who come after you as well. Uh, and I know I'm not the only one who's had that experience with you. Uh, so I wanted to say thank you for that as well. Um, well, thank you. That's that's a very nice of you to say. And uh, you you are right. We did come uh, a long way uh, since uh, those Arabic classes uh, in uh, Morocco. And for the life of me, I could never <laughs> say the big numbers in Arabic. Like I could count until twenty. But if I have to say two thousand ten, then I'm in trouble. My God, I yeah, I still struggle with that as well. I probably shouldn't say that on here, but yes. <laughs> I okay, well, I I guess just one last question before we we conclude this, um, which is the same question I ask everybody. I wanted to know um, what other projects or ideas, gestating ideas, uh, are in the works right now for you. Um, I'm working on a on a couple of projects. One is still pushing for the, this uh, question on uh, the international criminal justice system. So I'm hoping that this would be my, my second book, looking at uh, the history of the system itself, um, the racialized hierarchy upon which it is built and still operates, and uh, what it would look like if we decentered the Hague, if um, we started paying more attention to different conceptions of justice, um, different localities and modalities of pursuing justice itself. Um, so I'm working on, on that right now. Another project I'm looking at also uh, pushes further this idea of African agency as uh, conceptors, builders, and challengers of the international order. Specifically, I want to look at how African states have and continue to use the UN General Assembly, because I don't think we focus enough on the UN General Assembly. We tend to just discuss the Security Council. But I want to look at the General Assembly itself as a forum in which African states have um, developed a strategies for decolonization um, ever since the 60s, but also in current time. And by, for instance, using the General Assembly to push an agenda to have International Court of Justice um, give advisory opinions on the Chagos Islands, for instance, calling for the decolonization of the Chagos uh, Islands from uh, British occupation. So these are two main projects 
that I'm working on. Um, another one is that I'm currently writing a, a review, um, a state of the field basically on uh, race and uh, global justice. Okay, well, we'll be following all of these projects uh, for sure uh, and seeing what you're producing in the, in the coming months and the coming years. Um, but this, yeah, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Um, so again, for our listeners, this was Dr. Umar Bar, who was talking about his brand new book, States of Justice, The Politics of the International Criminal Court, which just came out with Cambridge, Cambridge University Press. Um, for those who want to learn more, there will be many other events uh, associated with the book. Um, I think there will be, or there will be or has been, another podcast on Ufahamu Africa, uh, as well as a review symposium uh, on Umar's book that is that has just started today, I believe, Umar, uh, on the website Opinio Juris, which will include several reviews of your book from various experts in the field. Um, any other events that we should be aware of if we want to follow uh, what's going on with the book, besides getting the book itself, of course? Uh, yes, uh, as you said, um, the, uh, in addition to this podcast here, there will be another conversation uh, that will come out uh, on Ufahamo Africa. And uh, the Opinion Juries uh, Symposium started uh, uh, this Sunday and will continue throughout the week. We'll have uh, some 10 contributions and then I will uh, respond to that. Um, there is an author meets the critics uh, roundtable that is scheduled in uh, during the African Studies Association conference um, in uh, November. Um, so I'll keep posting uh, links to all these events on uh, Twitter as they come. Of course. Uh, and there will also be a review of the book in the Washington Post, if I remember correctly. Yes, you are right. The Washington Post uh, on, on the blog, The Monkey Cage, has selected the book uh, as part of the summer reading uh, program. Yes. Perfect. So many outlets and many avenues that uh, listeners can uh, keep up with your, use to keep up with your book. And again, thanks a lot for coming on the, on the show today, Omar. It's been really, really great to talk to you about the book. Thanks, Medina. It was uh, exciting uh, discussing the book uh, with you. And thanks for this great podcast as well.